0: Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hey,
1: everyone! Welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm joined by our fantastic host, Steve Krupa. Hello, Steve. About time you had me back, Tom. <laughs> We've been we've getting phone call after phone call. People want Steve back, <laughs> and uh, we were able to uh, connect you with uh, an old colleague, Carolyn McGill. She's now the yeah. CEO of Adian. Tell us a bit yeah. about uh, about Aideon and how do you know Carolyn?
2: Well, Carolyn is a running Remedy Partners for a while, and so Remedy is a customer of Health Edge. So we uh, we met under those circumstances, and she's been pretty pretty well known throughout the industry. She was at Evelyn prior to that, United Healthcare, and so forth. Great healthcare background. Um, and, and Adion is sort of moving this, moving forward, this notion of real world evidence for, for healthcare. Um, and so I, I think she's wise to have have moved over there. I think that's, um, a great opportunity for her and and a great company, uh, to, to be a part of, um, the whole notion of being able to use real world evidence to determine uh, whether treatment protocols or frankly, pharmaceuticals. Um, are working the way they are intended, or in a, from a comparative effectiveness basis, be able to determine which one works best is really the answer that a lot of people are looking for. So that type of uh, that type of evidence in that platform uh, is something that both the pharmaceutical companies and the payers are interested in leveraging.
1: Excellent. Uh, it's a very cool company. We had them at the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit yeah. last fall, and I had a chance to speak with Carolyn then as well. She's a pretty impressive person. So
2: she just raised some money, right? So it's good to get these entrepreneurs right off the they get get off the road raising money because they're they're very sharp with their story, and um, and you know sort of have been through the ropes, if you will. And it's always a good sign when you know a new CEO CEO comes in and is able to raise money very quickly probably means the company's got a lot of traction.
1: Now, I always thought that after they've raised the money, they'd be less inclined to do interviews like this because they don't yeah. need to anymore. Is that uh, – are you always raising money? Is that the deal? Yeah, You just want to or, – or is this the best time to tell a story because you're full of enthusiasm yeah, and Yeah, I capital. mean
2: I'm not sure anybody wants you to do an interview while you're raising money just to be careful or be careful about the interviews you're doing while you're raising money. Um, but it's, it's always good to do interviews when you're celebrating success. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly raising money uh, is a way of celebrating success. And if you're if you're running a startup, uh, it's it's a never-ending cycle of telling your story. It's telling your story all the time. So you don't get to take a break from that. That's for sure.
1: (laughs) Well, we're we're happy to give you folks the opportunity to do that. So thanks for uh, leading this great interview. And let's get into uh, the discussion with Carolyn.
2: Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with uh, Carolyn McGill from AD. How you doing?
0: I'm doing very well. Great to connect with you again.
2: Yeah, good to connect with you. Um, I think I'm just going to start right away with the with the fundraise because um, it's good to have money in the bank, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it does. It feels really good. And not only to have money in the bank, but to have it come from such incredible partners. So, NEA led our Series B, and Flair Capital led our Series A, and you know we have representatives from both on yeah. our board directors, and they're just well-versed uh, in our space and have tremendous relationships across the industry, and uh, yeah, it really makes for a great partnership.
2: You, uh, you came into the role about a year ago or so, is that about right?
0: Yeah, almost.
2: And did they tell you that the first thing that you were going to have to do was go raise $36 million when they gave you the job?
0: Well I'll tell you, I had a sense that uh, to build on the momentum we actually we had some very early momentum with barely a sales team, no marketing department, and just a, a great product. and we knew that to scale we had to make some important investments that uh, you know having some more money in the bank would help us do. so I knew uh, I knew pretty quickly I think within uh, within 45 days of joining I was out there talking to potential investors the next nice thing about our story is that we ended up closing around relatively quickly which meant that we could get back to running the business
2: so if I look on the on the website I see the team you've got your three co-founders that um, have really technology credentials um, I'm assuming that they they got it got the company going and then went to find uh, someone with with experience scaling a business, um, is that is that a good guess as to what happened? Give me a sense for how you got involved, how they how they came and and found you to join the company.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great summary. You know, effectively, we had not only those who were adept in big data, but also in pharmacoepidemiology. The two of our founders were Harvard Medical School faculty members that had been studying safety and effectiveness of medications. For many years and realized that there were a lot of uh, mistakes made in those processes and a lot of inconsistencies that some technology that was built for purpose could start to address. And they're kind of obsessed with the notion of understanding the impact of a given clinical intervention on a specific population. So they built this incredible platform and got some early sales and great traction right out of the gate. then realized that they needed the organization to keep pace with that. And as you mentioned, um, I have a background in scaling businesses. So I was with Evelyn Health and, uh, and with Remedy Partners and even with United Health Group, which is obviously a much larger organization. Anytime you're trying to get a new product off the ground, you go through similar steps. The other component I think that appealed to the team about my background is my payer expertise. So, uh, payer and provider—I should say—at risk providers, and so we're able to marry up the biopharma knowledge with big data, and then that the payer and provider component coming, bringing that together was uh, was really important to unlocking some of the value that our platform can bring.
2: Was one of the founders the CEO before you got there or was it
0: Yeah, we had originally started with a CEO that we brought in for that purpose, someone with more of a management consulting background. And he stayed with us to, you know, set the vision early on, very instrumental in helping the team understand what was possible and, you know, setting some incredible goals and opening people's eyes for how we could transform healthcare. And then as we closed our Series A, it became clear that a lot of what we needed to do related to nuts and bolts aspects of recruiting, of setting company-wide goals, of, um, you know, thinking about how to create cross-functional communication streams and those things that are necessary to build an organization. And then while this happened, one of the founders came back and was the CEO for a period while they launched the search.
2: Well, you just hit on a bunch of things that I like to talk about uh, in terms of running a running a technology company. But let, let's talk about. Um, we'll come back to that because I, I'm not going to let. I'm not. I want to talk about cross functional collaboration and all that cool stuff. Um, maybe in the back end here. But since you just came off the road, and I mean that, you're probably on the road like raising money. <laughs> um, it's a good time to ask you for your pitch. So, what is the compelling reason? Uh, For your investors um, investing in the company?
0: Yeah, well, there are a lot of them. You know, the crux of it is that in healthcare, we make way too many decisions because of workflows that were defined by infrastructure investments or unvalidated conventional wisdom. And what our investors realized very quickly is that we're the only scientifically validated platform for generating real-world evidence and evaluating the safety and effectiveness and value of clinical interventions in a systematic way. And this, you know, it's just, it's, uh, it's so important. And I can attest to all the times in my previous lives uh, that we've made decisions to invest big dollars, right, in supporting populations or giving people better access to care in a timely way and not having great data to back up those decisions.
2: So um yeah real, real world evidence if you will you know the funny thing is is if we just go back to some of the things you talked about in terms of running a company right so i think i think the 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 moneyball mindset if you will or i don't know if you're a baseball fan or or not but totally sort of i love the, that story what's yeah. that
0: i love that story yeah. it's, uh, it's very well, inspiring
2: that that that's sort of like what I what I like to say, you know, at my, my company is is we're playing moneyball. So give me the data, and tell me what, you know, tell me what the data tells me we should be focusing on, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and obviously you're doing that in running your company, um, in terms of deciding where to invest your the money that you just raised and what products to pursue and you know where. Where technologically you have to spend your time, it sounds like what your company is proposing to do is to give that tool to the healthcare system, so it can start to 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 play the same game. Is that is that a good way to think about it?
0: Absolutely. So you know what we find is that as a country, we or as the world even, it takes us twelve years to get a drug to market, seven years on average for a medical device to come to market you know, to the tune of a billion dollars for some of them. We know we do randomized clinical trials to test safety and efficacy, and those are 50 to $100 million at a top. Um, When I was running Medicare special needs plans for United Health Group, I had a population that we were serving that was um, vulnerable over the age of 65, three or more chronic illnesses. And we were making formulary decisions oftentimes with, data from randomized clinical trials or lit reviews that didn't mirror the populations we were serving. And there are pretty significant consequences of that, right? Of not understanding what does it mean when someone has COPD and diabetes and they're taking this medication, or someone has limited access to transportation, which means they can't get to the pharmacy or to a physician's office on time. What are the implications of that on a course of treatment? And what we have found is that our biopharma clients, look to us to understand better which subpopulations their drugs can serve and at what point in time are they most effective. And then payers come to us, health insurance companies look to us to help tailor their formulary and plan design for specific populations that they're serving, and then almost even more importantly, understanding how much is it worth, what's the value switching to a new medication or a new clinical intervention. In other words, how much better is something new than the status quo?
2: And and you're capturing where well what's I mean I think logistically you're capturing this data from the health plan data, from provider hospital data? Where's the where's the where's most of the data coming from for you to do this work?
0: Yeah, we're we are data agnostic. So we try to look at different data sources depending on the research question that we're trying to answer. So in some instances, it could be claims data, and others are data from electronic medical records. It could be from patient registries or patient-reported outcomes. We also have relationships with governments and academic institutions around the world who capture different data sets. And the idea is that we're looking at how things happen in the real world, which By the way, in healthcare, it's it's comical that we have to specify real-world data in contrast to other kinds of data. (laughs) But in our world, what that means is what happens when we're outside of a clinical trial or more of a controlled setting.
1: And now we'll take a quick break from this conversation to remind you that the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit is happening on October 11th. You need to register before August 11th to get your discounted rate. This thing does sell out every year. Please don't miss out and save yourself a couple hundred bucks while you do it. So go to dhis.net to register right now. Now let's get back into this conversation.
2: Well, you know, it's a funny thing. You know, um, even if you go back all the way to the uh, the pharmaceutical companies buying PBMs, you know, like when when Merck bought Medco, etc. cetera, the, there was always this desire to get uh, they're hands-on real-world data, um, but I always thought they were also trying to sort of control the use of real-world data because there's two sides to that coin, right? I mean, the nice thing about a clinical trial is, is if you've demonstrated clinical endpoints and you can get your label, you know, you can go into the market and then it's really, uh, you know, best marketing, you know, sort of best distribution, et cetera, sort of wins the day in a drug category. Um, there is some uh, so one, vict- one one company 's victory could be another company 's loss as you start to to evaluate real world data right because real world data could demonstrate that two drugs intimid- intended for similar purposes perform much differently in the real world than expected clinically and Is that in the in the end what you are trying to weed out which one is performing better for the dollar spent?
0: That's exactly right. And we care most about transparency, right? So one of the things that's been interesting, Steve, is that we've been in real live debates with C-level executives of biopharma organizations around the world, as an example, where there are contrasting views on how much we want to know. <laughs> and what we find is that... Thank you for being clients... so honest
2: about that. But that's true, right? Some people <laughs> well, just assume you it alone.
0: Uh, Well, there's two elements there, by the way. One is, uh, geez, what if we find out something that uh, uh, has has an impact, right, and we're not sure what to do about that impact? The second is, what happens if a study is structured in a way that gives us an erroneous conclusion? And that's a big part of the concern, is where is the transparency and how I'm structuring these queries? How am I defining prevalence and incidence, and which measures am I applying to which data set? Because what we find is that there are a lot of inaccuracies or lack of appreciation for validated scientific approaches that can mean that uh, people are steered in the wrong direction. But I'll share that our clients who are the most progressive absolutely want to know the answer. The ones who, are, who end up working with us, they want to know the answer and they want to know it faster and sooner and, uh, and with more accuracy than anybody else knows it. And, you know, that's really the dynamic, I think, that value-based care, so this notion of not just paying for every unit delivered, but actually paying for the impact on quality that a given clinical intervention has, that's the dynamic that value-based care has brought to our healthcare industry, finally, just like every other aspect of our lives. And so, you know, we really find that that's traction that is just building on itself.
2: So the the clients could be pharma, and I'm assuming it could be providers or, or probably payers. I would think anybody who's at risk for the dollar would be interested, and in, and I guess providers that are trying to you know that have an interest in a, uh, an outcome uh, for track for for their their track record. Um, but I I would I would think the payers would be the first ones to want this information. Um, so that they could, they could use it to, to you know, if, if there are two paths you can go down and they can figure out which one is better from a cost outcomes point of view, they'll, they'll definitely go after that. If you're on the losing end of a real world pharmaceutical trial, that's not necessarily something that's appealing. Um, so how how has the business start to, started to come your way? Is it coming your way from one side versus the other or are they both running at you?
0: Yeah, well, I want to address a couple of the things that you mentioned there. So the first would be the the payer dynamic and what they're looking for, and then I'll address the question around how we built our business and the the question of biopharma and the real world evidence and how that might derail a given uh, drug launch, as an example. So from a payer perspective, there is tremendous interest. Absolutely, uh, you know, one of the most recent studies that we did was for a client that knew that they were having a problem managing their diabetes population but didn't quite understand what to do about it. So the first thing they do is just say, hey, do a descriptive analysis for us and help us figure out what are the treatment pathways that are currently in place and what are the implications of those treatment pathways. So we look at the data and um, running it through our platform, we're able to come up with what we consider to be patient cohorts that align to how patients are being treated. And then we're able to compare, well, geez, how many unnecessary hospitalizations were in this group versus that group or ER visits or what were the differences in cost and quality that we can ascertain. And then once we have that lay of the land, then it's about, okay, we can see that uh, we have two courses of treatment for a diabetes population and the, second-line therapy is twice as expensive as the first-line therapy. Um, okay, this makes sense. This is what's happening. This is why someone's on one versus the other. Well, then they start uh, looking at comparative effectiveness and trying to understand what happens with one treatment versus the other. And when we started to do that analysis in this specific example with, the, uh, with this payer's data, we found that even though that second-line therapy was twice as expensive as the first-line therapy... For a subset of the population, it made more sense for that therapy to be first line or to pay twice as much because that patient population responded more quickly to that intervention than the other one. And that's pretty revolutionary to think I might double my unit price and yet bring down my total cost of care. That's what we find payers are most interested in. then to go to your question about biopharma and could their marketing plan be derailed as an example if they're on the losing end of a trial with real-world evidence that demonstrates maybe their drug wasn't the most effective. And what we have found is that our clients want to know this sooner rather than later. And so, for example, even in the drug development phase, if they can start to do analyses to understand where there are gaps, Where are the medications that are already on the market maybe treating these conditions falling short? And what are the characteristics of that patient population that are are being underserved? How can we develop a drug to meet that need? And then even as a drug is launched and in the market, the question becomes, are we are we truly the best, and if not, why not? <laughs> and what can we do about it? and look, we're not telling them anything they don't already know right because they're in the process of negotiating contracts with payers real time, so they have real-time feedback about whether something is selling or not, whether doctors want to prescribe it, whether patients are responding well to the treatment
2: are you are you veering outside of drug treatments or are you Looking at mm-hmm. the full pathway of care um, for, yeah. for example, chronic illness.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you know the crux of what we've done, and and this is the value of having our our two founders with their academic backgrounds is that they've created a platform that assesses safety, efficacy, and value of clinical interventions. It's really about the the um, care pathway where we've gotten the most traction to start is with respect to pharmacoepidemiology, pharmacovigilance, right? That's in the space that uh, we've gotten the most traction. So this gets to the other question you asked about how we built our business. Biopharma companies have been using SAS programming as an example, have been assessing these kinds of questions for years and years. And they have a, a very, um, well defined machinery engaged in trying to answer these questions. So that was a logical place to start uh, because they're very quick on the draw of recognizing the value of scientifically validated approaches in structuring these kinds of studies and answering these complex questions. They also appreciate that how quickly we operate and in how much of a reliable way. So at the end of every study you run on our platform, the system automatically generates a report, 200, 300 pages, depending on the complexity of your study, but lists out all the assumptions you just made. And it brings a level of transparency that many other methods don't bring. So that's where we've gotten our traction, but, uh, but certainly the underlying value of the platform is really safety, efficacy, and understanding the the value of different interventions. So, there are um, many other applications beyond that. Do
2: you guys find yourself pursuing your own hypotheses, or are the hypotheses um, brought to you by your customers? Some combination of the two.
0: Exactly. So we have different offerings. Our the baseline offering that we have is an uh, is a self service platform where the users understand, in this case, pharmaceutical epidemiology. They understand how to structure studies, as an example. And they are creating these queries to answer questions that the pharma industry has been answering for years. So, for example, maybe the FDA has come to us requesting a label change that would be more restrictive. Uh, Is that necessary? Uh, Or, you know, something that's calling the safety of our drug into question, as an example. Um, Those are things that are kind of industry standard and and pretty common. And those are things that the platform or that a user can do on the platform in a straightforward way. There are other examples of things that can be more complicated, or they're someone who runs market access or a franchise on behalf of a med device or a, a biopharma company might ask, and maybe they're saying something like, geez, uh, you know, launch this drug and it flops. What can we do about it? <laughs> um, we're number two in the market, how can we become number one, right? Um, or a payer example would be we want to do formulary optimization for uh, people over the age of 65 with three or more chronic illnesses, or you know identifying a subset of the population. And then we have other clients. Or oftentimes, what happens is that within the same client, they have different needs. So there are other examples where clients are saying things like, we know that, you know we have a, a specialty in oncology or cardiovascular disease. And we want to understand more about slowing the progression of that disease, or we want to understand more about where there are gaps in, uh, in the medications that, you know, fit this entire landscape. And those are much more complicated questions that we need to partner with our clients even to know how to structure so that eventually, you know, they become more templatized and can be integrated into the platform, but it takes time to get to those questions. And then the other component, of course, is when our biopharma clients and our payer clients want to come together in the context of an outcomes-based contract. And that too requires a fair amount of tailored thinking.
2: Awesome. So let's got just a two minutes left or so. I, I, I'm, I'm genuinely curious um, about what it's like to step into what I, I think a startup fair, fair enough to call it a startup. I mean, based on- mm-hmm. What are the challenges and what are the things that are exciting about, you know, jumping into sort of a young company as it starts to execute on what what appears to be a pretty awesome idea?
0: Oh, I love thinking about this topic. Uh, I will, I'll start with the challenges. The challenges relate to understanding lay of the land. You know, I joined a company, yes, absolutely, as a startup, but it was a startup with significant traction mm-hmm. uh, with a client list that were you know, global biopharma clients, right? So some very promising early clients and uh, and impactful work. So trying to understand what's great about what we've already created and how do we build on the successes that we've had? What is it about our culture that attracted people and kept them here, even as we were doing proofs of concept and building the platform, which, you know, is a, is a heavy lift and not always pretty, right? It's complicated. Um, so that's the first order of business is to listen a lot and to understand what what makes that organization so unique. And then the second component, of course, is setting a vision in place and thinking through, okay, where could we be in five years? And how do we ensure that we're building an organization that can scale with the demand? And then also build on the early systems um, without getting uh, without drinking our own Kool-Aid. So without getting complacent that our early successes are sufficient for defining our future market. So that's where most of the challenge resides. And then the third thing I would say relates to building a team, ensuring that we you know we're retaining people through that uh, scaling process and then also attracting in new talent to help us move in new directions. That, uh, you know, rely on a level of domain expertise and organizational expertise that, um, you know, maybe wasn't inherent in the startup.
2: I think recruiting a team, building a culture, all those human resources or human capital uh, activities is the hardest thing because it's, you're going so fast, you're, you're constantly, you know, needing more resources, right?
0: Yeah, and you also want to make sure that you mentioned culture, that it's cohesive. And that people understand, people feel empowered along the way. They understand what they're accountable for, and they're treating each other with kindness (laughs) as we we move forward. Um, And even as their roles are changing, even when there's uncertainty, right? And that can be a scary environment. So, making sure that we're checking in with each other frequently and ensuring that we are aligned on our vision is very important.
2: Do you feel as though you have a defined? culture there or are you still finding your way in terms of uh, what the environment is like, what it's sort of like to work there?
0: We're evolving our culture, I would say. We, we absolutely have a solid foundation and again with roots in both academia and I should say three things really it's academia and that scientific um, rigor in addition to the big data space helps us a lot and um, you know The crux of what we do is try to make healthcare simpler to use and and make it more transparent. And that's something that is endemic to our culture. So that's absolutely an element we want to hold on to. Um, There are other components around like defining our values, as an example, that uh, we're trying to find the right language to describe, especially as we make that transition from a startup where we could each kind of focus almost independently in our own areas of expertise, to a world in which we rely on each other and we 're trying to be, become more scalable and serve many more constituencies and that requires a, a level of teamwork that is relatively new to our organization, so we 're pretty excited about defining that together and um, and making sure that we 're checking in along the way
2: very cool very cool well we're uh, we 're up to our time here, so yeah. tell me uh, tell everybody how they can. Find you, are you uh, on Twitter or uh, blogs or anything like that? What's the best way to find out about you and find out about uh, the company?
0: Yeah, the, the best thing to do is to start with our website. We have all kinds of great information on there. and then um, we are on Twitter and on LinkedIn. So we do try to publish not only um, blogs and and kind of blurbs about things that we care a lot about but then we're also dedicated to some of our thought leadership efforts and publishing and scientific publications and the like. So keep your eyes out for that as well.
2: Perfect. Well, thank you for joining me. It was great talking to you.
0: Thank you. Glad to connect.
2: All
1: right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this week's breaking health podcast. Thanks also to everyone who is subscribed to the breaking health podcast. If you haven't done so, please do. We'll send future podcasts directly to your listening device. We appreciate it also you give us some rankings on uh, on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast. That helps folks find the podcast. Of course, tell your friends. Let them know what we're discussing here on the Breaking Health Podcast. If you're enjoying it, no doubt they will too. Finally, reach out to me directly. I'm on Twitter. You can be reached at MedTechTom. That is at MedTechTom. You can also find me the old-fashioned way on email, Tom at HealthBG.com. That's the word, health followed by the letters E-G-Y.com. a G is the producer of this and many other fine podcasts and great events like the upcoming Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, which is happening on October 11th in Boston. Please register for that sooner rather than later. This one does sell out. Go to dhis.net to register for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. You'll join us in Boston, my hometown,